From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com, WISE dot com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Think about where you live. Why do you live there? And since 2020, do you find yourself wanting a different home somewhere else? Since that landmark year, the American home buying and rental markets have gone from hitting record lows to exceeding record highs. And pandemic-era economic changes are the driver. Many of us are now working from home. And we're rethinking where we want to live and how we want to live and what makes sense for our families and what doesn't. Which means people are moving. In fact, there are fewer homes available for sale than ever. There just isn't enough supply for all the demand. And that has all kinds of ripple effects, especially on those who are unhoused or on the verge of losing their homes. In this country, there isn't a safety net if you're on the edge. So the number of people experiencing homelessness is on the rise. Why can't we keep up with the supply of houses? And what do we actually owe our fellow human beings when it comes to shelter? I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Jerusalem Dempsis. She's a staff writer at The Atlantic, and she used to be a policy reporter here at Vox. You might even recognize her as the former co-host of The Weeds. Dempsis is a housing policy expert. She can explain the market, past and present, better than anybody I know. But as you'll hear, she's also keenly aware that human beings are at the heart of housing, and that where we live or can't live has a dramatic effect on our lives. So I invited Jerusalem onto the show to talk about all this. And the first thing I wanted to know was, how did she get drawn into writing about housing in the first place? It's really funny because like, you can obviously come up with a bunch of stories for for why you are where you are. Uh But in this particular case, it actually is quite a direct story. Like, I was studying economics in undergrad, and I was in a labor market economics class, and there was like an extra assigned reading for something, and it was a paper by a Yale law professor called David Schleicher, and it was a paper called Stuck, 
And this was in 2017. So it was right after Donald Trump had just won the presidential election and was about to be sworn in, I believe. So everyone was like, there are all these theories floating about around like, what's going on in like real America? Like what has happened to upend conventional political thinking around who was going to win this election? Basically, the premise of the paper was that for a long period of time, moving from an economically depressed region to one that was growing would always pay off from an economic standpoint because even though the cost of living was higher, the wages you were earning were so much higher than what you would have been earning that it made sense to move. So if you're a janitor in New York City, you're making a lot more and your standard of living is a lot higher than if you are a low-wage worker in a rural town that doesn't have the same kind of economic opportunities. But over the course of the late 20th century, as we're seeing a lot of things in particular, as we're seeing the cost of housing grow, this script begins to flip that like, yes, you see a lot higher wages, but for more and more people, the cost of living grows to the point that you don't actually see this pencil out. And so what that means is a lot of people end up being stuck in these communities where there aren't really good jobs, but the good jobs are in a place where the cost of living is too high for them to access it. And, you know, I was like, you know, a senior in college, like, wow, like I have figured out exactly why (laughs) all of these people voted for Donald Trump. And I had this like monocausal explanation for a couple of months. But the more I got into housing, the more I realized that there's this really misunderstood and also largely ignored phenomenon of what's going on in our housing market. And it's really, really important. And it plays a really big role in how people's lives turn out. Is there a simple way for you to sum up what's actually broken about housing policy in this country, other than the fact that the rent's too damn high? The fundamental problem is that housing policy is not oriented around making sure that there is affordable, accessible housing for everyone. And there's a bunch of things that stream out of that. Because We're not focused on that. We're focused on a bunch of things, whether it's preserving the way communities look right now or increasing property values in some areas or whatever it is. Because our focus is not affordable, accessible housing, you have a bunch of different policies that spring from that that end up making it impossible for people to live where they need to live. And I think it can sound really wonky when we're talking about things like zoning regulations or housing financial or how to finance affordable housing or whatever it is. But at the fundamental, it's just People should be free to live where they want to live because that's like the foundation for a good life. Picking your own community or being able to stay in a community that you're rooted in, it is the foundation for your spiritual life, for your like personal life, for the people you end up wanting to be friends with or marry or whatever it is. If you're not able to make the choice about where you live under a housing market that is basically excluding you because of prices, because of rents, because of fundamentally insufficient supply and insufficient diversity of types of housing, then you can't make that choice. You're being pushed to live where you can afford to live. And that means your community is being chosen for you. It means your life is being chosen for you in a way that you have very little control over. So I'm sorry if this is a stupid question, but we're not afraid to ask the stupid questions around here. So I'm going (laughs) to ask it anyway. Do we even have a clear definition of what, to use the phrase I think you used, what affordable, accessible housing actually means? Yeah, it's a big question because, I mean, it depends, like, affordable for who? Like, what do we mean by this? And, you know, the federal government has this idea of what's affordable to someone with a certain percentage of the area median income. So, like, someone with 50% of the area median income, so who's doing worse than a lot of people in their community, what's affordable to them is obviously very different than the 75th percentile or 150% or whatever it is. But then also there's this question of, like, how much of this is 
bringing down the cost and how much of this is a problem of poverty. Like often people are talking about affordable housing, they're talking about it from a middle class standpoint. Like they're talking about how can I afford a first starter home that's three hundred dollars or $400,000. And for a lot of people who are working in the housing space, when they're talking about affordable housing, they're really focused on low income renters, people who could maybe afford $300, $400 a month to pay on rent. And so I agree that this is like a very nebulous term, but I also think it's just like this animating idea that like regular people should be able to afford housing and shelter is like not really what's at the center of what we're doing today. I know you've argued that a big part of the problem is this mythos of home ownership in this country. And we'll get to that a little bit later, but I just have to say that I kind of hate you for making this argument because (laughs) I'm a homeowner. Yeah. (laughs) And I know you're correct, but I'm already neck deep and the sinkhole of of money, and I can't back out now. So <laughs> I'm just going to lean into my cognitive dissonance, I guess. But Well, I mean, even we'll get into it later, but I think in general with these conversations, because as I've mentioned, housing is so personal to people. I want to make sure like I'm often just trying to talk about housing policy at a macro level. I think the individual decisions people are making for their lives are like, we're all constrained by what's available to us. And also there's a lot of good reasons to be a homeowner. So no shame, no shame. (laughs) Just don't buy a house with foundation issues. (laughs) Yeah, probably not. I'm going to drop that nugget. I'm going to moonwalk right out of the virtual room. I want to ask you, how much of the homelessness problem in this country, and that's something I really wanted to dive into in this conversation, how much of that problem is the direct result of our housing policies? In other words, how much of the homelessness problem has been effectively engineered in this country? Yeah, this is a really good question. And I think it requires taking a step back to think about like what we mean by like causality, like what causes what. Because if you talk to someone on the street or someone who's at a shelter or someone who is couch surfing and you say like, hey, like how did you end up in the situation? They're going to tell you a story about individual vulnerability that is completely true. They're going to tell you about maybe a divorce that they went through that cut their income in half. They're going to talk about a medical emergency that they went through that really impacted their finances, a lost job, a predatory landlord that evicted them and left them with a black mark on their record that made it difficult for them to rent again. And all of these things are like true. For that person, like that's what happened. But when we think about macro changes across time, you have to look for what's changing at the societal level because there have always been predatory landlords. There's always been poverty. There's been lots of divorce. There's been all these different things. But the rate at which we're seeing folks become homeless, now it's around 500,000 people in this country are homeless. And more importantly, there are tens of millions of low-income renters who are always at that brink of potentially becoming homeless if they face one of these emergencies. That is new. And the cause of that is when you look across the country, there are states that are high poverty that don't see the kinds of homelessness that places like California and Washington and Massachusetts see. When you look at places that have high rates of mental illness and high rates of drug addiction, they don't see the level of homelessness. What you do see across the country is that what determines whether a state sees or an area sees high rates of homelessness is whether it has a sufficient amount of housing available to very low-income renters. And whether the very bottom of the market, there are renting opportunities available for people who are in dire financial situations. And if those exist, like in places like Detroit or in Philadelphia, where there's a lot of housing relative to what we see in places like San Francisco or LA or Boston or DC, 
you don't see that rates of homelessness, even if there's poverty, even if there's mental health issues, even if there's drug addiction, because the housing is available. And it sounds really simplistic, but like the problem of homelessness is in the name. It's homes. People don't have them. And I think it's really reasonable why people don't conceptualize it this way. If you come across homelessness in your daily life, you're likely to experience it or remember it in a way that's pretty jarring. Like maybe you see someone experiencing a mental health crisis or you see drug addiction going on or you see something that seems extremely jarring to you in public and that becomes your vision for how homelessness functions in society. But most homelessness is like not seen that way, right? You don't notice someone who's crashing in a motel. You don't notice someone who's couch surfing in their friend's apartment. Kids being separated to different family homes because there's no central place where they can all live together. Those things are really hidden, and that's what makes up the bulk of homelessness. You know, I appreciate that you go there with this because I wanted to ask about the link between housing affordability and homelessness. And of course, someone might roll their eyes and go, well, if houses are too expensive or if we don't have enough of them, then there will be lots of people experiencing homelessness. But it is more complicated than that. And part of the problem is that a lot of us have preconceived notions about what it means to lose your home and what that looks like. So we're missing a lot of what's going on here. Yeah. And I think it's useful to think of it as sort of a funnel, right? Like you have at the very top, a large amount of people who are in unstable housing situations, who are low income, for whom a specific emergency might push them into homelessness. And then of those people, like a certain number, if there's not enough housing, will fall into homelessness. And then for many of those people, it'll become much more worse, whether because of individual vulnerability, like the ones we talked about, or because of just bad luck. I mean, luck is also a big factor in this when you talk to people who are homeless, you're just like, wow, like that's just like insanely unlucky (laughs) that that would happen to you on top of all these things. And for those people, when these populations are large enough, then you get a larger growing number of people who are chronically homeless, who are experiencing extremely difficult things on the street and then become exposed to potentially really harmful drug situations or criminal activity and become victimized themselves and enter that kind of cycle of poverty and violence. And that's a situation where I think it's really important to realize that people see this and they're saying like, okay, like I just don't get why the government can't get these people off the street. Like it's only 500,000 people. And that's actually a quite manageable sum for the entirety of the United States. Like that's not actually that many people when you think about all the government services that are available. The problem is, of course, we have to address the flow of people who are falling down that funnel. You have to stabilize those people so we can actually help the chronically homeless, the folks who are in shelters to get out of that situation. Okay. So if we have a supply problem, then that means we have a building stuff problem. Yes. (laughs) Which leads to the question, Why is it so damn hard to build things, to build houses, more houses in this country? Why is it so much more expensive here than it is in other places? Yes. So the fundamental reason, and particularly in these really high cost of living cities and counties and suburbs where the homelessness crisis is most acute, is because it is illegal to build housing. And I want to be clear here. What I mean is that in these places, you own a single-family home that is on a lot where the city has said it must be minimum 10,000 square feet. And you are not allowed to tear that home down and build a house that is 9,000 square feet. You own this home, and it is illegal for you to do this. And that is compounded by regulation after regulation. It's illegal for you to build a duplex on that lot. It is illegal for you to build a mother-in-law suite in your backyard on that lot. And what that does is that it compresses the number of housing 
opportunities that are available to people. And it also inflates the size artificially of the houses that are allowed to be built, which means that houses more and more over the course of the 20th century, we see houses getting larger and larger. It used to be that you could find tons of starter homes, 1,500 square feet. That would be like a first house that someone would buy maybe when they're in their late 20s, early 30s. The supply of those starter homes is like dwindling to near non-existence, especially in these areas. What that means is that you're raising the floor for what it means to buy a house. Is part of the story there cultural? Like as home ownership became more and more of a status symbol in some sense, that the drive to create bigger and bigger and bigger houses and have more space between houses, that this is all sort of compounding and contributing to the problem. You know, the story of zoning regulations is a lot of it has to do with wanting to keep areas segregated by race and by class in particular. And even when that gets struck down, there is a desire to maintain a certain type of community, which includes kind of racialized and classist ideas, but also is just like those ideas inform then what we think of as a nice neighborhood. This idea of like a white picket fence, every house kind of looks the same. That's also informed by how our transportation policy was created as well. And obviously there would be big houses in America, regardless of this. It's a very wealthy country we live in, and there are a lot of people who can afford to have bigger houses. But there are a lot of people who can't, who used to be able to buy their way in or rent their way to greater degrees of prosperity. And that being eliminated, I think, has a lot less to do with culture and a lot more to do with the literal policies and both unintended and intended effects of making it illegal to build even small single-family homes. It's not just money. Homeowners employ a ton of tactics to maintain their property values. Coming up after the break, Jerusalem and I discuss the sneaky but consequential world of environmental protections. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. 
Great Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. Correct me if I'm wrong on anything here, but you know, other countries allow the state to regulate and enforce environmental standards or building codes or that sort of thing. But here the whole process, I'm not sure if it's right to say that it runs through the legal system, but the process is vulnerable to the legal system in ways that just continually undercut efforts to build things. Yeah. So in the U.S., one example of this is there's a law called the National Environmental Policy Act, and it mostly applies to like big transit projects or just large, very, very large projects that might be done, energy projects or things like that. And then at the state and local level, there are environmental regulations that are modeled off of this. What ends up happening is that you create this framework for which developers or individual property owners have to justify to the state that the thing that they're trying to build does not violate some sort of environmental desire. And that sounds good in practice, right? Like, right. like you think like, oh, yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Like when someone's building something, we don't want it to harm the environment. But what's actually happening is that things that are obviously not going to be harming the environment, like a bike lane, like a solar project, <laughs> like are being stopped in protection of things like parking lots or, you know, single family homes, which we know increase car dependency and make it more difficult to transition to a more clean energy future. And so what ends up happening is that on project by project level, you're creating these regulations that are really, really onerous. We know that multifamily housing is more environmentally friendly. One, because heating costs and cooling costs are shared amongst a bunch of different people. Like I live in an apartment building. Even if I turn my heat off, it doesn't get that cold in here because my neighbors have their heat on. The building itself is heated in the hallways and things like that. That shared environmental benefit is obviously baked in. But in other countries, right, we trust the government to say the government itself will have the ability to make the determination about whether or not something is environmentally friendly or not. And instead, in our country, what we do is we create this avenue for people to sue. And so you can sue and say, hey, I don't think that this environmental impact statement or this report was filled out properly. And then you just, instead of actually pursuing the end of environmental protection, what you've done is create a space for people who have access to lawyers, very wealthy people, interest groups. Right. And it's one of those things where it's like very clear that these laws are being used and a ton of regulations, which sound really good in theory, are actually being used for bad ends. Well, I mean, this intersects with an argument you've made, I think, correctly about the contradictions of liberal ideology. You know, liberals want housing to be affordable, especially for groups that have been excluded in the past. But that bumps up against the material interest of incumbent homeowners who use the system of laws and regulations we've created in the name of transparency and fairness, but they use them to protect their own wealth. Yeah. And I think that's just a fact of the matter. And I think it's important to just call it out. And you do. Yeah. I definitely think this is one of the things that's most important to recognize is that people really are good in recent decades at identifying regulatory capture. But what we've become not very good at seeing is the way in which 
we ourselves or people who are regular voters can also capture parts of government and make it difficult to do things that are broadly popular or broadly necessary for the rest of us. So, for instance, homeowners, there's nothing wrong with being a homeowner. Of course not. But we've created a system in which we've pitted certain people's interests against everyone's interests. And what that means is like some groups of homeowners may not want People living there who are very, very wealthy may not want poor people in their community. I wrote a story last year about how this very expensive, exclusive town in Atherton, California, this guy named Mark Andreessen, he is a venture capitalist. He's a billionaire. He has written a lot about how government is captured by incumbent interests, how we need to build big things. He and his wife submitted a public comment in his town of Atherton opposing the building of multifamily housing, saying that it would destroy property values and raising a significant other concerns. And it's just that we have created a system where like someone like that can recognize, of course, on a societal level, how harmful it is to stimmy the government in this kind of opposition and how much it makes it difficult to build things that are necessary, whether it's housing or infrastructure projects or renewable energy or whatever it is. But at the same time, on an individual level, feels empowered to stop that in their own community. And if there are people in every community who want to stop that, they're not going to feel individually responsible for the collective effect. But that system is making them individually responsible. And within liberalism, I think you just mentioned, I think there are these competing impulses of feeling a sense of urgency around climate change, feeling a sense of urgency around racial justice and class justice and economic justice. At the same time, feeling a sense that there should be community control, which prevents the government and prevents the private market from building things. And it's a balance. There's a level at which you want both of those things to exist. But we've shifted so far in the direction of community control at this point, where if there's a scarcity of something, rich people are going to get it, you know? <laughs> and so yep. it's, it's people who are in the middle class, it's people who are poor who are going to be really screwed in that situation. Yeah. Fancy that. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So you just mentioned an example from California. Mm-hmm. And California is is what everyone likes to point to as the case study of what's wrong or broken in this space. Do you think that's wise? I mean, does California, for lots of reasons, exemplify or distill all of these problems? Yeah, I think with California, they're just a little bit ahead of the curve mm. of what's coming down the pipe for a lot of places. So The places that are experiencing the worst of the housing crisis are the places that have seen the most economic growth. And that means a ton of people have tried to move there to share in that economic growth, to add to that economic growth, to take part in the dynamism that exists in these places. And California has not one but two major centers of that, both Los Angeles and San Francisco. And it benefited from that. For a long time, it benefited from that. That is one of the growing parts of the entirety of the U.S. economy, let alone the California economy, is this pull to have really great workers come in. And economists refer to this idea as agglomeration economies, when workers come together and firms come together and discover that they're more productive together than they are further apart. That's why you get a Silicon Valley. It's why you get like a Hollywood. People come together and they learn from each other. They spin off and create new things that are related to those fields. But on top of that, it's not just those people, right? When when those people all move there, they demand a bunch of services and goods. They demand lawyers and legal services. They demand doctors and nurses and hospitals. They demand taxi drivers, new restaurants, all these different things. So you create a bunch of different jobs that aren't just directly related to that field. And while California enjoyed that growth, it didn't want to accommodate for that growth by building sufficient housing. Now, other places are also growing, right? Like It's not just the California cities and the other superstar cities with similar phenomenons like Seattle or Boston or DC or whatever it is. You now see cities growing like Austin, Texas, like Phoenix, Arizona, like Miami, like Raleigh, 
all these different cities, Nashville, like you see these cities also experiencing increasing amounts of growth, both because they have things that they're pulling industries to, but also because California, Seattle, all those other places haven't accommodated for workers and workers are forced to move. And of course, in the last couple of years, the new phenomenon of remote work has allowed for more and more people to forego living in these places and still benefit from those jobs. And so you see a lot of growth happening and you see a lot of the patterns being repeated, right? Like you see in Florida, Florida state government, which is a place that has, you know, traditionally really been telling people, move here. We want that growth. We're excited for it. Trying to block local efforts to build more housing. So it's not a thing that I think is specific to California. I think that California was just, and the West Coast in general, were just ahead of the curve in the economic experience. So is the NIMBYism problem you were just talking about with Mark Andreessen, that's not in my backyard for those unfamiliar with the term. Is that is that phenomenon unusually bad in California or are we just more aware of it? in California? Uh, two things here. One is that not in my backyard usually refers to someone who is in favor of something in general, like you're in favor of affordable housing in general, yeah. but you're not in favor of it in your backyard or like your neighborhood or something like that. So I think that that's really evident amongst liberals because I think we like often do talk a lot about wanting more affordable housing or wanting more clean energy. But the idea of just in general, this idea of opposition towards new things, towards change, towards growth, I think is just like a human thing. I think we're all kind of like NIMBYs in that way, right? If you buy a house in a community, you kind of like the way that it is. You can imagine certain things changing to be better, like maybe you want more trees or you want like the curve to be repainted or whatever it is. So you have things that you can imagine improving it, but like they're small things usually or like obvious improvements that are not really structural, big changes that are different than what you would have imagined when you first bought the house. And so I think that that's a pretty human element. And what you want in a society is a government which can mediate between desires for stability and also accommodate and encourage healthy growth and change. Because I think that when people become too attached to a community as a series of buildings or infrastructure, they can forget the thing that makes their community great or the people, right? And I think about this a lot in like, I grew up right outside DC and, you know, you can just trace the growth of where new immigrant food pops up based on the commercial rents in an area. And it used to be that like there were lots of cool, new, amazing restaurants popping up all around the inner core of D.C. all the time. And now, I mean, for the last decade, at least, all of them have been in the suburbs and further and further out in the core. And so are you missing out on cool, new, amazing things that new people can bring you? Because Places only really change and experiment when they're available to people for whom changing and experimenting is what you want to do. So you're young, you don't have a lot of money, you need to rent somewhere cheap. You can't have that, then you're not going to have that kind of dynamism. Yeah, and look, I don't want to paint every person who opposes developments you know, in their neighborhood as cartoon villains. I mean, I get that people move to certain places, to certain neighborhoods, because they like the aesthetics of that place, or they like the community in that place. And these things are fragile, and they can change or go away and, and make the place different or unrecognizable. And that is a not trivial concern. So I do just want to say that. How much of this do you think is just a scarcity problem, right? This is a country without social safety nets, where everyone is kind of on their own, where the only way to secure your future and your family's future is to just acquire as much wealth and resources as possible. And it's not hard to see how that imperative collides with the housing crisis. You know, people are, they're defending their property values. And in a country where homes are such a huge financial asset, I get it. 
Yeah, I think a few things here. One is that it's not actually clear to me that people are actually working in service of their property values here. If you take that example of like you own your own property and a developer comes to you, Sean, and says, the city has just upzoned and they now are allowing me to build a duplex on your lot. And now your lot is worth a lot more to me than it was before when it was just a single family home. And I say, Sean, I'll pay you $200,000 more, me the developer, than what you paid for it to buy your house and turn that into a duplex, your property values have gone up because it's become more possible to build more housing. So it's not really clear to me that people are actually acting always in their financial interest when they do this. I mean, we've created this idea in America in general that like apartments are blights, that people who live in them are poor, they're immigrants, it's dirty, there's are slums. This is something that's been developed and pushed both by like the court system and also politicians and cultural rhetoric, which is not something that was inherently going to be that way. It was definitely something that was created intentionally. But that first point I think is really important that like I don't think people are often acting in their best financial interest, especially when you factor in when you grow older. There's now tons of people like AARP is now some uh, an organization that's been working a lot on housing supply because they have a phenomenon of seniors who buy houses. They are trapped in them because, you know, the house is an asset that has money stored in it, but they don't want to move. But they also can't access the second floor of their house anymore because they can't go upstairs. And so they're stuck on the bottom floor of their home. So they're confined to the first floor of their homes and they would move to a smaller unit in their community, but that doesn't exist because they've been opposing the building and construction of affordable housing or of different types of housing in their areas. And so you're screwing over your future self often as a homeowner when you oppose these things. You're screwing over your kids maybe who won't be able to stay and grow up and live in your community. That means you can't live near your grandkids. So I think that there's this idea that these people are always acting in their best interests and often and they actually are not. So I think the important thing is here, how do you construct a government system which takes the reasonable concerns around massive amounts of change and weighs those against the costs of not building? Because if I turned to you and I said like, hey, you can vote for this policy and you'll get to keep your neighborhood exactly how you like it, but it's going to cost every worker in America $10,000 a year. We would think that's ridiculous, but that's actually what's going on here is that the costs are so great that wages have been impacted at that kind of a level. And so I I really do think that it's a question not of how do we change people's minds around this, but how do we create a government system which mediates all these concerns in a reasonable way? An argument I often hear, mostly from conservatives, is that progressive cities like San Francisco or L.A. or New York City have bigger homeless populations because they provide all these welfare services, which in the end just enable the very problems they purport to solve. Now, we have some data on this, right? And it disproves this claim, no? So, I mean, the first thing I'll say is I like to put people in kind of in the mindset of what would happen to them and try to like logic this out a bit, right? Let's say that, Sean, for some reason, you had a massive financial emergency. You and your family are about to be homeless. The first thing that you probably do is you tap your family and friend connections. Like, hi, like, can you help me out for a little bit? Like, I just need to get back on my feet. People can't help you out. You, like, make sure your kids are okay. You make sure your spouse is okay. You try to find a place to have, like, just immediate shelter. The idea that someone would leave their community to go to a place that they have never been to, where they have no connections to job networks, no connections to social supports, because they heard that San Francisco or Los Angeles is like a better place to be homeless, doesn't actually make any sense. (laughs) Like, it's just not how individual people react to crises. They stay 
in their places they're familiar with because they know that they can get access to services or help from the networks that they already have in those places. So we know that people like, you know, maybe would move from like a Montgomery County, Maryland to a DC, or they'd move from like a Long Island to a Manhattan or something like that. But people are not making multi-state trips to get to blue cities, to get access to services, which often are not actually that great, especially on the West Coast, which we know never has enough beds anymore to accommodate the homeless population. Second thing is, though, when you look at randomized control trials of whether or not government supports like giving renters more income or whatever it is reduces or increases homelessness, it reduces homelessness. So it's one of those things where, again, like it's technically true that we do not have sufficient data to fully disprove this theory, but all the data that we do have pushes against this idea. And also just common sense around how regular people would behave pushes against this idea. So I do think it's one of those things where people want to find something else to blame because the actual culprit is just really, really difficult to solve on a political level. Is the American dream of owning a house a myth we should all let go of? That's coming up after one last quick break. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance... Who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I want to circle back a little bit to what I was joking about earlier about this, you know, the mythos of home ownership and the story that we've all been told in this country about owning a home is pretty simple and at least superficially reasonable. Right? It's, it's, you know, don't waste money on rent, buy a house, build equity, cash out later after the value of your house has increased, and then you just buy a nicer home. And so it goes. It's the American dream. Do you think that's A, wrong and B, something we really have to rethink or let go of? in order to mitigate, I won't say solve, but mitigate the problems we're talking about. 
I think the real problem with that message is how uniformly positive it is about homeownership for everyone at every stage at any point. What you have right now is a culture and a politics which says to every single person, the second that you can buy a house, do so. And we reinforce that message by not caring or trying to fix how bad the rental market is. If we actually thought that homeownership was a really meaningfully good choice, we wouldn't need to prop it up through all these financial gimmicks or whatever it is the federal government does to try to prop it up. We would not ignore how terrible the rental market is because honestly, a lot of people are choosing to own a house because the rental market is so bad that they're just trying to escape that reality. Whether it's not being able to have ownership over your space, like you can't paint the walls the way you want to, or you can't garden the way you want to, or you're at the behest of a landlord who might just pop in unannounced or might just kick you out if he doesn't want you there anymore. And also at the lower end, really a threat of unfair, unreasonable, and predatory eviction practices or whatever else is happening. And so I think that's one of those things where meaningful choice towards homeownership is not being had in this country because we've made the alternative so terrible for most people that it's really the only thing you can do if you want to have a secure future. And so largely my point, and I wrote this article for The Atlantic about the homeownership society and rethinking it, is that it's a really heterogeneous experience. For a lot of people, owning a house is a great financial decision that works out well for you. For the marginal person, for the person right now who's considering buying a house, I think it's a really mixed bag. A lot of the properties that are available to you might be extremely old, in need of repair, might sink tons and tons more money into it. Climate change is making it such that a lot of properties that are at the affordable level for people are things that are going to potentially be destroyed by storms or fires or whatever. I referenced a finding by NPR around how the Department of Housing and Urban Development which was in a quintessential example of having like pro homeownership reign, is attempting to push more and more people, especially first-time homebuyers and people of color, into accessing homeownership, which sounds like a really great goal. And they end up pushing them to buy homes that are directly going to be flooded with near certainty in the next couple of years. And it's one of those things where it's like, these homes have already flooded, this area has already flooded, and it will flood again. And it's one of those things where, do we actually think that the cult of homeownership is such an amazing thing to join that we are saying to someone that it is better that you own a home that will likely experience this massive financial harm in the future. And also just like the personal harm and stress of having all your stuff flooded is obviously also terrible and is not really priced in. And so I think there are all these things like this that we don't consider when we tell people to buy houses that are really important. Well, that's also part of what makes it a bit of a shaky investment for lower and middle class people in particular, because a lot of the wealth gains to be had are rooted in luck and in the places where you can be more sure of the value increasing. Well, those are the places that are obscenely expensive to buy and you can't, the barriers to entry are too high anyway. So you're kind of screwed. But even there, Sean, I think that's what's so crazy is that like even there in those places, like would anyone three years ago have guessed that there would be a shock to labor markets that would allow people at high levels to move out of San Francisco and still work in tech. Like remote work was not predicted by almost anyone. At this level, like we have 20% of workers working at some level fully remote. I mean, that is unheard of. And it's one of those things where that had had a massive impact on housing costs. And I think people think that they can predict. They'll say like, oh, well, San Francisco, DC, that will always appreciate. We know that's going to always appreciate. We don't know what's going to happen. And we're telling people to put all their money there anyway. This is related to the homelessness problem we're talking about because we have this current dynamic of pushing people into buying houses. And at the same time, we have this policy preference for never-ending rising housing prices. And that just punishes newcomers, just makes it harder and harder and harder and harder for people to get into that. 
the home ownership game. Totally. When the music stops, there are a lot of people without a chair. Yeah. The fact that your property value is something means that, let's say we say your property value is $500,000, that means that there's someone willing to pay that, hopefully multiple people willing to pay that property value. The higher and higher it gets, right, eventually it's like, who can afford like a $2 million house? Like very few people can afford that. And that's what we're saying with constantly appreciating housing prices, that there should always be someone new ready to pay that price. And at some point, the dam breaks, right? Like at some point, there's not going to be enough people to pay for that. I mean, part of the problem now with you know the homeless problem in particular as that intensifies people become more responsive to reactionary and draconian policies they just want to criminalize homelessness they just want to get it the hell off my radar get it off the streets at all costs but in the end that just ensures that the underlying problems will persist right yeah that's a road to nowhere or nowhere good Yeah. I mean, I I do think we're at a really bad inflection point here because people are so frustrated and fed up because of homelessness in particular, but also housing costs that they're willing to turn to really, really counterproductive policies. And this isn't just me saying this as like, I think it's pretty inhumane to just criminalize people who have nowhere to live. That's definitely a big part of it. But also like it doesn't work. You're telling someone who's homeless, it's illegal for you to camp here. It doesn't actually give them anywhere to go. In DC, there was like local reporting, which showed that people at a new encampment were just people who had been dispersed from old encampments, like you have to actually have somewhere for them to be in order to tell them to leave. And especially in California, where there are not enough homeless shelter beds available for the population, it's kind of ridiculous to be like, oh, it's illegal for you to be here. Our attempts to criminalize poverty don't actually make poverty (laughs) outlawed. Like people are not poor by choice. And so it is one of those things which is really depressing is that like because we've really kicked the can down the road so much, at this point, I'm not sure how much patients voters have for a solution which is really a long-term one. Yeah, and I just feel like as a society, we just don't really have an answer to a really basic question, which is what do we owe our fellow human beings? Or we have many answers, but certainly no consensus. And part of what's interesting to me about this problem is that it doesn't really collapse neatly along conventional partisan or ideological lines. There's never a perfect equivalence on anything. But the left and the right really don't have an answer for this. And they contribute in different ways to the problem. And in the interest of being real, (laughs) I think a lot of people, most people perhaps, don't want to bear the cost of doing what's right here. And the uncomfortable reality is that if you really drill down, a majority of people in this country have internalized our very hyper-individualistic culture. And many of us are comfortable and there's not a lot of appetite for real sacrifice. And and maybe some of that has to do with the scarcity problem we were talking about earlier. And maybe some of it is just the fact that this is a very libertarian (laughs) society. And, you know, the bigger the country gets, the more atomized the country gets, the more these sorts of collective action problems become insoluble. Yeah. I mean, a couple of responses there. One is that the, the problem of regulatory constraints on building housing infrastructure or other types of infrastructure, the truly libertarian response to that should be to allow for property rights, right? Like if you own your house, you can paint it blue, you can, no homeowners association or like overzealous local government can tell you you can't have your kid move into your garage. Like that is the truly libertarian response here. And I, I think that's one of the things about this problem to me is that like, it should attract every ideology. Like leftists are in favor of building social housing, building and protecting lower income renters and promoting a stable housing and rental environments for people. Conservatives are very opposed to government intervention in 
this space. Libertarians similarly have those kinds of reactions in theory. But I think what it comes down to is while everyone kind of has these like fancy and theoretical ideologies at the theoretical level, what really matters is structure of government. When you have a local government that is in charge of permitting housing, that has the power to block infrastructure in general, it takes just a couple people to block it all. And that doesn't matter if 98% of people are in favor. It just takes a lawsuit. You only need one person with a lawyer. And the question here is how we have allowed this structure of government to proliferate and has a lot to do with the fact that we have deference towards the legal system as being the best way to resolve these kinds of disputes. And also because we fetishize local government and treat it as if it is closer to the people because it is smaller, but really it's a lot less representative because many fewer people vote or engage. And so the really democratic outcomes, they don't happen at the local level. They happen at the state level or the federal level or more so at the state level federal level than they do there yeah i'm constantly searching for ways to explain a dynamic that exists in other spaces like healthcare in particular so even if you're someone who on a moral or ideological level doesn't believe healthcare or housing is a human right there's still the fact that as a society we are paying a price for these problems one way or the other. Don't give people health care. Well, they end up in the emergency room and that drives up cost. Don't provide housing, livable wages, a basic social infrastructure to people. Crime and other social pathologies go up. You have more people that end up in prison. And we all pay for that, right? Like there's no way we're not paying for this one way or the other. Yeah. And so like pretending like the problem doesn't existing and just retreating into our libertarian cocoon, that's not going to get the job done. That's not going to make anything better. It's certainly not going to make these problems go away. I thought COVID-19 would be much more of like a uh, come to Jesus moment for a lot of people. Like, I mean, especially with housing, right? What we saw is with homeless folks, you know, homeless shelters were terrified about how to shelter people, especially in the winter, while the spread of COVID-19 could mean death or serious disability or a number of things for both the homeless population, but also its community spread. If more people in your community had COVID, it was a public health issue. It wasn't an individual issue. And what was great is that that spurred a lot of places to start investing in converting hotel space into homeless shelters. That was a double whammy for communities because hotels had been depleted. And so getting that kind of funding input from public sector was able to tide them over. And it also gave homeless folks a real place to go. A lot of times people are like, well, I know someone who rejected going to a homeless shelter. And what you have to recognize is that a lot of homeless shelters are gender segregated. So it means you have to separate maybe from your partner or even your children in order to go to a homeless shelter. They don't allow pets. And that may seem like a joke to some people like, oh, well, you can't get it. Like a lot of people don't expect to become chronically homeless. Like I have a dog. And if I thought I was gonna be homeless for a week or so, I wouldn't just abandon my dog because, you know, (laughs) it's like from one week from now, I'm going to have a new place to live. The apartment I'm going to be is going to open up. And then also can be quite dangerous, right? Like there's a lot of victimization that can happen in these spaces. But with a hotel room, you have privacy, right? There's a door. There's a place to go to the bathroom that's private, that feels safe and secure. So there's a lot of innovation that happened there. And thankfully, we're seeing some places take that seriously and think about converting hotel space and other places into homeless shelters in the future. You know, I agree with you. I think a lot of the times there's not a lot of solidarity here, which is sad, but I also think that it's not actually that important for solving this problem right now because it is in everyone's interest that we deal with the housing cost problem. This is not something that is about charity for one person or another. This is going to affect everyone. 
if there's not affordable housing for you or your kids where you need it to be, when we look at our universities where there's no affordable housing for students or housing at all, like the rates of student homelessness have gone up, you're going to send your kid to UC Berkeley and they're not going to have a place to live? Is that really the society we want? And it really is going to become a systemic problem in every single sector for higher education, for public health, for all these things. You said it better than me. Even if you have some aversion to charity or you can't help but think of people who have fallen into bad times as responsible in, in some way for their own plight, this is still, even if that's your point of view, this is still in your interest to address. I think that's just a key point. So I will leave it there. And I'll just say like, this was an education for me as someone who doesn't think about these sorts of questions very often. So thank you for helping me do it, Jerusalem. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. And if you care about these problems at all, you should absolutely follow Jerusalem's work at The Atlantic. She is a terrific reporter and one of the best in this space. So check out her work. Eric Janikas is our producer. Amy Drostovska is our editor. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And A.M. Hall is the boss. I really enjoyed that. I hope you did, too. There really is a human dimension to this. It's not just a policy issue. It's a moral issue. It's really a philosophical issue. And as a society, as a culture, whatever word you want to use, we just don't really have a good answer to this question of homelessness. And part of the reason we don't have an answer to that question is we don't have a good answer to the question of what we owe people. What is a human right and what isn't? Those are big moral questions about which we don't have a consensus, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to mitigate them. And it certainly doesn't mean we shouldn't try to talk about them. Let us know what you think. As always, drop us a line at the gray area at vox.com. And if you appreciated this episode, please share it with your friends, all that good stuff. New episodes drop on Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe. Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Designers and devs, you might be able to do your thing better on Wix Studio, a web platform with everything you need to deliver bespoke sites hyper-efficiently. Design teams get a ton of smart features that can take the grind out of web creation without it costing per-pixel control. Dev teams, you get a zero-setup, developer-first environment, combined with an AI code assistant and your preferred IDE for rapid deployment. Search Wix Studio today to explore the full range of features.